We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 158. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk to the Chief Revenue Officer at WildNote, Jeff Aramosby, about the platform and where it's headed. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It is. Um, it's going. It's a very interesting day. We're recording today on the 1st of July, and it is the first day in over 20 years that I've been unemployed. <laughs> now, nice. nothing bad. This is my own choice. Um, I've mentioned <laughs> on the podcast before that I was going to be leaving the school that I've been at for 20 years, 21 years now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I left on good terms. I, I helped hire my replacement, all good things. You know, I've done brain dumps so that I'm sure that, you know, all my colleagues can, uh, can continue and do do better things even without me, without relying on me for things. But yeah, it's a little scary <laughs> at my age to suddenly <laughs> branch out on something new. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to it. And I'm uh, looking forward to continuing this podcast. I'm looking forward to continuing my life in archaeology and learning more. And uh, I think that's what we're here today for, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to let people know that might be coming here from the archaeology show because I mentioned this on one of the previous episodes. I mentioned that we were going to be talking pretty heavily about the new solar and battery setup that we have in our RV because I I do think this is applicable to traveling archaeologists that maybe don't have a 36-foot Class A motorhome, but they might have a van or camper truck or something else that they're traveling around in and can use a very similar setup. So I think we're going to focus on that for the next episode. But for this episode, we are going to talk about something that still requires batteries in some cases and technology, (laughs) and that Mm -hmm. is WildNote. And to do that, we are bringing on somebody that has not been on this show before. We have talked to the founder of WildNote, I think twice in the past, Kristen Hazard. She also brought Nancy Douglas on to talk, and that was one of my first, actually, introductions into WildNote, was talking to Kristen and Nancy probably almost five years ago now, four or five years ago, and... I've been talking about WildNote ever since, so you guys know all about it. But to help us learn where WildNote is today and where it's going in the future, we're bringing on Jeff Aramosby. Jeff, how's it going? Well, Chris, how are you doing? Good, good. So, you know, first off, I just want to have you give a little introduction to yourself. What is your position at WildNote and what are you responsible for? Sure thing. I am Chief Revenue Officer here at WildNote, which means I basically have responsibility for growing the top line of the business expanding in deeper into the environmental consulting market. And obviously a big part of that is cultural and archaeology work Mm -hmm. and responsibility for, like I said, both the sales and the marketing side of things well, and trying to get us on a track of consistent growth so that we can really sort of fulfill our destiny, I think, is uh, is why I'm here. Awesome. And along the lines of growth, uh, I'm curious because we we talk about WildNote on this show all the time, Mm -hmm. and that's always in the context of archaeology. But what other verticals or services lines is WildNote currently seeing some success in? Sure. We are uh, basically a technology platform uh, for environmental consulting businesses. So, you know, sort of all the areas that environmental consultants work in, in addition to cultural and archaeology work, there's obviously, you know, biomonitoring, wetland delineation work. We support lots of different kinds of wetlands evaluation techniques in order to understand the the health uh, and resiliency of 
of wetland ecosystems. So, you know, in addition to all of the Army Corps of Engineer forms for doing wetland delineations, we also support a technique called CRAM, which is the California mm. Rapid Assessment Method, which is a relatively recent entry into how you quickly assess the value, or I should say the health of a wetland ecology. And we do a lot of construction compliance work. Obviously, a lot of what environmental consultants do is tied into construction. Before you go dig in the dirt and start building things, you've got to make sure, obviously, that you're not going to disturb anything that needs to be preserved, which is, you know, obviously where your work comes in, nor that you're going to kill any birds or bugs and bunnies, (laughs) so to speak, uh, nor that you're going to destroy any wetlands, all of which are, are pretty important. And then, of course, you know, you also need to make sure as you're doing that construction that you're complying with all the appropriate things around there. So we do a lot of construction compliance work as well. So those are, you know, sort of the the core values of what uh, are the, the, the markets that uh, the wild note tackle. Uh, that's really interesting to me. Uh, Chris, obviously, as he said, uh, and as all our <laughs> listeners know, mentions wild note quite a bit on this podcast and always within the context of archaeology. And you're just listed off a whole number of different fields that wild note targets. And I'm curious kind of on the technical end, but but speak to it on the business side too, if it's relevant, is how do you manage all those different kinds of fields? Does what you learn in one inform <laughs> the other? Because it seems like they might have entirely different procedures. Yeah. So, you know, sort of it does to some degree. I mean, you know, our underlying platform, technology platform, you know, it's essentially sort of made up of three parts, right? There's this, this web database that sits in the center where the data that you collect gets dropped into that database so that you can manage it, do QA and you know, QC on that data, et cetera. We've got a front end app that, you know, runs on mobile devices that lets people go out in the field and actually gather the data that they need to be that doing, you know, archaeological, you know, shovel testing or, you know, what have you uh, out in the field, uh, whether it's counting, you know, the number of birds that you see in a specific location or, you know, measuring uh, soil types to see whether something is a wetland, you can gather all that information on your device, um, but then can connects with the database. And then the third part of the platform uh, is the ability to go and generate with just a few clicks, standard reports coming out of that database that you can send into agencies, regulators, um, whoever it is that you sort of have to report this data to. And so, you know, the underlying technology can be applied to a lot of different things. I will say that, you know, we've we've applied it uh, primarily to environmental consulting and actually exclusively to environmental consulting, uh, I should say. And environmental consulting, just by its nature does all these things. So, you know, if you go to a big giant environmental consulting firm like Tetra Tech, as an example, you know, they've got people who do wetland delineations and they've got people that count bugs and bunnies. and They've got people that go do cultural resource work and, you know, d- dig holes and look for artifacts and, you know, historical things and, and such. And the thing those they have in common is that, you know, they all basically have to report this information into somebody um, at some point. They need to generate a report. And so sort of the underlying process is essentially, you know, pretty much the same. There are specifics in the forms, obviously, and there's terminology mm-hmm. and language and other things that are specific to each of those sort of sub-disciplines within environmental consulting. But there is a fair amount of leverage in the in the technology that sits underneath it. So we, we probably have a bigger challenge perhaps on the marketing and sales side in that, you know, I I have to have a salesperson who can speak to the needs of someone who does cultural work and someone who does wetland work and someone who does bio work and someone who does all of that for construction compliance. Hmm. And so that requires, that requires a lot sort of along the way. 
you know, that's excellent that you said that, because that was going to be my follow up to this. And I, I'd like to mention, too, that a lot of people don't realize exactly what goes into some of these projects. I mean, the, the project I'm on right now with my company, and I've got two other companies working with us on this deal, is an environmental assessment for a large land managing organization. Uh, not a federal one, just a large organization that happens to be on federal lands they're leasing. And in order to clear this 15 to 30,000 acres of land, 15 this year and 15 next year, there's a lot of things that happen. And cultural is only one small aspect of that. There's biology happening here. There's, I think, actually some wetlands work happening here, even though we're in the high desert. There is some areas like that that fall under that jurisdiction. And some Army Corps stuff, some stream stuff, some uh, some geology. And the thing I've always liked about WildNote is is even if WildNote doesn't have like forms that are currently built for whatever you're doing, the form builder will allow you to basically build whatever you want. And if you've already got it in your company, you can use WildNote for other things that your company is doing uh, at the same time. And you can build that. That's absolutely right. I think that's one of our strengths is that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we think about the way we tackle the environmental consulting industry is that the way I like to position us now is that you will likely need to do some things that aren't supported yet in WildNote. However, we are a flexible enough and easy enough to learn platform that you can do those things that are specific to your business, all while leveraging the 80 to 90 percent of uh, the work that you need to do that we already support. Mm-hmm. One of our advantages is if you need to put in a report to, you know, say the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers on a wetland delineation or the California Department of Parks and Recreation on a cultural issue, the whole process of taking data and putting it into a report with a couple of clicks that spits out the other end, that's kind of the same for us. I mean, those are all widgets, right? So it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't change that much in terms of what we need to go do. So we, we think that's one of our strengths is we've got that that real, we've got a lot of, of the things that you need right out of the box, but then we can customize and you can customize the platform to do kind of the 10% that you need to do in order to make it work perfectly for you. So that, that, that's that's what yeah. how I like to think about WildNote. Awesome. And in regards to those other service lines as well, I mean, I want to know about how you gather the information about how to best service those other industries or all the industries that WildNote helps, like from wetlands and the new cram thing. Archaeology, I mean, I know, of course, I've mentioned this on the show. I've been consulting with WildNote for, mm-hmm. I think, around four years now to help bring mm-hmm. archaeology to the platform. But do you seek out or do they just come to you through other companies, uh, subject matter experts and people to help develop these these forms and exports that WildNow has? Yeah, I, so it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. You know, what we typically have happen is that a firm will come to us. They're, they are likely looking for some sort of data collection solution. While we're much more, obviously, than the data collection side of things, that's kind of where they start. And then they'll say, well, we also need to take this and we need to turn this into a report that we have to turn in. So great, great example of this is um, one that you're familiar with, Chris, is that, you know, we just brought on a firm uh, that's doing, as a customer that's doing work in Utah. Mm-hmm. They are categorizing rock art and, you know, cave paintings and those kinds of things out in the Utah desert. And they have to turn all that into the SHPO and in Utah. So, you know, we were able to develop the the report so that not only 
Do they gather the data in the right way? But then they can go ahead and generate those reports right of our system that will go right into the state uh, historic preservation office there. So they came to us, you know, although I think we might have found them. I don't know. Maybe we were prospecting. I don't remember that one uh, specifically. But by and large, people will come to us or we'll find them as a target. We see that they're a good candidate and a typical sales process. We go talk to them and and go make that work. Yeah. So it's a little bit of both. And, And honestly, we've got a lot of expertise here. You know, you mentioned both Kristen and Nancy. You know, Kristen has been working in environmental consulting uh, for a long time. Her experience has, you know, been more on, you know, sort of the bio end of things, you know, biological monitoring, that type of stuff. And then Nancy has been working, as I I like to say, no one in the world knows more about how our product works in the real world than Nancy Douglas does. That's true. And so, you know, with, with the expertise we have here, when someone comes in with something new, we can generally get up to speed pretty quickly and uh, go make it happen. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, real quick on the Utah stuff for anybody listening to this, that works in Utah on the Utah IMAX forms, the ones that were updated just a few years ago, this will just make your mouth water because one of the things you still have to turn in in Utah is the tabular data export, which can be a real pain in the neck to put together. And we're doing that automatically from your site forms. So that's pretty sweet. I haven't had a chance to play with that yet, but I'm hoping to soon because that is just an awesome export to have. It's one thing to have the site forms. That's what we have that for a few other states too. But that tabular data export is such a pain. And just to have WildNode do it for you is awesome. So. Yeah, yeah it, it's complex. There's a lot of technology <laughs> that uh, fits underneath that. And, you know, even yeah. more than the technology side, the QA side of that, <laughs> making sure yeah. everything works mm-hmm. because uh, the testing matrix around these kind of things is pretty intense. So that's probably where the vast majority of our effort goes in is, is, is on the quality side of things. Yeah, for sure. And that's one thing to note, too. You know, I talk to a lot of people in different platforms, and including this one, about going digital with their company. And I, I see people posting on social media about, oh, we're doing this or or we're developing an app in-house. And I've, I've had people tell us about that. And they don't realize that, yeah, sure, if you've got an extra $200,000 laying around, you can develop an app and you can use it. But the ongoing support and maintenance of that app is what really gets you. I always, I always liken it to owning an airplane or a boat. Yeah, you can actually buy an airplane for $20,000, but it's going to cost you $1,000 a month to hangar it. And then your FAA maintenance fees are going to cost you another few thousand dollars every couple of months. And it is just going to nickel and dime you. And that's why boat also stands for, you know, bust out another thousand <laughs> because <laughs> slip fees, trailer fees, you know, all the registration, every time you go out, you break something. I mean, it's the same thing with owning an app, I got to say, because every time they push out a new operating system or they push out a new device that everybody wants to use, you need a team of people behind that making sure it still works and it's still supported and also pushing out new features so you can be more efficient and get things done. Let's take out our opportunity to take a quick break and we'll keep talking to Jeff about WildNote. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. 
Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 158. Today, we're talking f- to Jeff Aramaspi from WildNote, uh, which you've probably heard on this podcast a few times. And uh, <laughs> just before we went to break, Chris was talking about the difficulty of maintaining your own in-house software. And again, tying it back to my <laughs> now, no longer my job, <laughs> but uh, up until yesterday, uh, we... <laughs> At Dalton, often had created our own software for various things. For you know, virtual dig is what started it all back in the nineties, and we've done all sorts of things. You know, we couldn't find registration software for high school students that that met our needs, so we built our own in house. And you know, it's it's very different. It's not quite as broad and as varied as uh, as what WildNote is dealing with in terms of servicing so many different industries. But I will absolutely 100% endorse what Chris was saying about the difficulty of maintaining your software. It's not just the building it in the first place, but keeping it running year after year as somebody comes and somebody goes and people who know how the, the, the database queries or the programming language or whatever that keeps it all working uh, as they come and go. That is the real trick to, to software longevity. So a lot of times, even though it seems like it might be the quicker, easier, cheaper thing to do mm-hmm. to build your own, it oftentimes is not. So Jeff, that was a long-winded thing, but I, <laughs> one thing that you were saying uh, earlier that you were talking about the, actually you and Chris talking about consultants, subject matter experts, who informs what you're doing. And I was, I was just curious, personally, what is your background? You're the business guy, chief uh, yep. revenue officer at Wildno, well, but are you also a scientist? Because you were talking about these various fields with a facility that uh, that's better than mine, that's for sure. I am not a scientist. I, okay. uh, I am, I've been a, a software technology guy for the vast majority of my career. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know, I was an economics major. So, you know, economics is a science, um, mm-hmm. although most people don't believe that, I think, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a social science for sure. Mm-hmm. So you come at least from an analytical background that's probably helpful. Um, I spent some time at, early in my career at, at software, or I'm sorry, at hardware companies like uh, NCR Corporation and Compact Computer uh, before I went kind of full software back uh, late 90s uh, timeframe. And I've been doing that ever since. And in particular, software as a service, obviously, which is mm-hmm. what, you know, cloud-based software, which is is uh, is what WildNote is. You know, I think one of, one of my strengths, I think, is an ability to sort of pick up the way different industries, you know, work and pick up the language of them, you know, relatively quickly. You know, since I've been here at WildNote, which has been now seven months, I have just been sort of totally immersed in the world of environmental consulting. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and I've, I've talked to enough customers at this point, enough environmental consultants, I, I think to kind of understand the challenges that they face, you know, sort of the way their businesses work. Don't be wrong, I'm learning something new literally every day. I think it would take, you know, quite a while, you know, to, 
the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour thing or you know whatever that is to right. become an expert in something says it'll probably take me another five years <laughs> full-time work before I get there. What, what most people do and what my experience is uh, when it comes to different types of business processes. There's there's really kind of a small number of types of business processes and they just get repurposed sort of for different reasons. But, you know, the business process for someone doing archaeology work versus someone doing bio work versus someone doing wetland work before a construction project can, project can start is really kind of fundamentally the same. It's the details, the technical details that are different. And, hmm. you know, those are the things that we try and support really well in, in WildNote. Uh, well, to follow up on that, so your background is uh, is economics and is software. What's the general background of, you know, in broad terms of, of people who work for WildNote directly? Um, hmm. are, is it mostly scientists? Is it mostly programmers? Is it something else? Yeah. So there's there's a really nice mix. So for instance, you know, on my sales team, and when, you know, we're not a huge company, we're, you know, 12, 15 people uh, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on, on my sales team, I've got two people there in sales. One was, a, a, was an engineer and she worked through a number of different, uh, and actually was in the petroleum energy industry as an engineer and, you know, sort of ended up here in San Luis Obispo working for a company that was a spin out uh, people from PG&E. You know, she, so she sort of came to it from that perspective because obviously utility companies do a ton of environmental consulting work. Mm-hmm. And then my other salesperson actually came from environmental consulting. Um, she worked for Parsons for a long time. She's an environmental engineer, a also a PE, a professional engineer. And, you know, so that, that's sort of her background. We actually have a developer who was a, a biologist was out in the field doing environmental work, you know, uh, uh, biomonitoring and, you know, those sorts of things. And he got into software and came to us that way. So, you know, the company itself, I'd say we have a nice mix between people who've got a sort of broader sort of software and technology background, and then uh, people who have an environmental consulting background or a biology background or come from the science world who, you know, have added a little software expertise on top of that. So um, it feels feels like a, it's a really good, interesting group of people here. I think Chris knows a lot mm-hmm. of us pretty well. I think he would <laughs> he would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I've worked with other software companies trying to get something like this off the ground. And, you know, I, I hear of some other efforts out there where some of their taglines are built by archaeologists for archaeologists kind of thing. And I'll tell you what, if I was watching a movie about archaeology, I don't want it shot by archaeologists. I want maybe archaeologists as consultants, but, you know, I want Stanley Kubrick as the director or, you know, somebody else. I, I don't want archaeologists doing that <laughs> because yeah, they're, not, sure. they're not good at it, right? They're good at archaeology. And so when it comes to something like this, I am so happy that when I, you know, when I have an issue or a feature request or something like that, that I can articulate it in a way that an archaeology can understand and use, an archaeologist can understand and use, and then explain that to developers. And they are savvy enough to to translate that into code and do what we need to get done. And it's awesome. And you know, there's always little things that happen sometimes with software when, again, operating systems update and stuff like that. And we've got people that just handle it. They just take care of it, you know, and and nine times out of 10, they've already done it because they've had the beta and they figured that out. But as everybody knows, you know, things change when the, when the real one comes out. So it's awesome to have a team that is educated and knowledgeable in those particular subjects of software development to be able to do that. And it's not just 
you know, nerd coders sitting in a basement eating Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew. I mean, we have iOS and Android and web mm-hmm. developers and they don't really cross over too much from what I've known. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is, here. yeah, this, this is, this is very true. There are definitely different disciplines, yeah. you know, and, and I think, you know, one of the keys in doing good software development is that, you know, your product management and product marketing people are the ones who translate, you know, what does the person using this tool need into the technical requirements, to let a software developer go out actually write code for it. Mm-hmm. And the people that we have here that, that do that piece, primarily the most product management and, and product marketing work is done by Nancy and by uh, Kristen. Mm-hmm. They're really good at that, right? So that's the sort of the, that's the secret sauce of software development. And, you know, where it really matters is can you translate what it is that the your customers, your users are asking for into something that is, uh, can be can be written in code. You know, do you do you get the right uh, feature requests right? Have you defined them in the right way? Do you know how it's going to be used? And I think we do a really really good job at that here. Yeah, absolutely, I would agree. So I'm curious, Jeff. You, I know you said you've only started about six seven months ago here at Wild Note, but you must have a sense as you were coming in because we were still you know pretty deep in the pandemic at that time. <laughs> how did Wildnote fare during the pandemic? What was your sense when you came here that, you know, how did, because everybody, everybody kind of came down just a little bit, but Wildnote is a digital service. I know that there was, field work was largely shut off right at the beginning of the pandemic, but then started to kind of pick back up again as they realized that archaeology and construction were essential services. Right. And that started to continue. So at least from the archaeology side of things, I know that that's true. But do you have a sense of how Wildnote fared during 2020 and the and the pandemic as a whole? Yeah, sure. I, I think, you know, 2020 a little bit for Wildnote was a little bit of a, a flat year, kind of over 2019. Sure. And I think a whole bunch of that was driven as a result of just sort of pandemic activity. As you said, uh, once people started getting back out in the field and we started to see things pick up more a little bit in the second half of the year, I joined in December. And, you know, since then, um, things have been growing you know, really nicely. We uh, increased the number of customers that we've had so far by over 50% so far this year. So we've been in business for about four years. Mm-hmm. And in the first, you know, six months of this year, we increased our customer base by over 50%. So that was really wow. exciting. And, though, and one of the really exciting things, again, we brought on a number of different cultural clients, which, you know, those are sort of kind of a hit or miss along the way. <laughs> but uh, um, now it seems like we're getting um, many more of those entering the pipeline, probably somewhat thanks to, you know, your podcast and <laughs> discussing wild note uh, there like i said I, I mentioned the utah stuff earlier and and you know that firm is logan simpson and you know they started with just a few seats and have you know recently added some more to support some additional projects and actually mm-hmm. they're going to be um, doing a lunch and learn with us to talk about the, the work they're doing in utah how wild note has helped them coming up on july 13th so um, if i could put in a shameless plug for that um i will do so i guess i already have so <laughs> it's, well, there you go it's it's, it's done that ship sailed <laughs> yeah, it's, it's done. Um, you know, you could fix it in post, I suppose. But, you know, um, no, no, no. <laughs> anyway. no, it better, I'll do you one better. We'll have a link for that Lunch and Learn in the show notes. So if you're listening to this in real time, as this comes out, you've got about six days or so before the Lunch and Learn. So definitely sign up for that. I have been the subject of a couple of Lunch and Learns. You have. When they first started, I did one. And then I did one, I think, not too long ago. Back yeah, in I think you did February, one in February, February, right? Yeah. 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 Give or take. February or March. And yeah. Yeah, something like that. And they're fun. And it's just a it's a good crowd of people. I mean, sometimes they have a couple hundred people on there and it's yep. just 
it's a really great time. Uh, you learn something and you get to ask questions and interact. It's not like it's not like this podcast, quite frankly, where it's kind of a one way conversation. This is recorded and edited. That is live. And it's uh, it's a half an hour of, of good content. And then question and answer if everybody has time after that. Yeah. So yeah. And, and Kristen's an, Kristen's an excellent uh, host for it. Yes. Yeah, I, I've been I've been impressed both with the quality of the discussions yeah. since I've been here and then. Um, in addition to that, the um, honestly, the the audience size has kind of blown me away. I think part of it is that Wild Note has a pretty good following and mm-hmm. uh, has built a good reputation, particularly among environmental consulting uh, folks. And so, you know, that kind of the testament is that they show up during a lunch hour to uh, hear, you know, kind of what we and our guests have to say. So that mm-hmm. that's that's good validation, I think. So, Jeff, I, I want to switch gears here because as listeners of the podcast know, I'm very into data, data integrity, uh, manipulations of data and so on. And so it strikes me that that the kinds of data might be pretty widely variant between you know one field and another that they, they use WildNote. But what I'm really curious about is where do those data live? Does everything go up to a central server? That would um, does it all live on the, the individual devices? Are there various other servers that are set up? Um, you know, for self-hosted or something else? Yeah, absolutely. So we we are a 100% cloud-based application. Mm-hmm. Product runs on Heroku, which is a mm-hmm. uh, cloud management environment that runs on top of Amazon Web Services. And, you know, our database sits up in the cloud. It's pretty typical of SaaS software. It's what's called single instance multi-tenant software. So we've got one, you know, big giant database and the data for, you know, customer A <laughs> sits in one section of that database and the data for customer B sits in another section of that database. You can only see and access your own. So the security level on it is really, really high, but you get a lot of efficiencies out of that. And it's what allows us to deliver, you know, really sort of the value for the price that we deliver. And again, this is why it's really difficult for you to build it yourself because, you know, Mm -hmm. managing databases is not easy. Uh, Managing remote access to databases is not necessarily easy, although certainly the cloud has improved that, you know, for everybody. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's, that's where it sits. And it's a, you know, it's a typical SQL database that we use to, you know, store, store everything we store. Of course, we store photos and, you know, another uh, separate uh, cloud uh, instance. It's not in a, a relational database, as you can imagine. That there was our flat files, and you know they sit up in uh, sit up in the cloud, uh, and we manage those sort of separately. But um, literally everything that WildNote does, everything you do with it, every time you build a form, every time you fill out a survey, every time you take a picture, every time you do an export. All of that is driven out of the cloud. Well, that's fascinating to me. I like that, uh, obviously, <laughs> that you can't get access to somebody else's data, that that's probably a given. Yeah. And, and that's built in. Uh, th- this is just actually something that came up with the last episode where we were talking to uh, Chris Nicholson from TDAR. And I was asking him a number of questions about uh, the legalities of uh, surrounding the uh, the collection and distribution of certain kinds of data. So is that something that you have to deal with, with WildNote having certain legal ramifications to who can see what? And I'm thinking you know, HIPAA as the model. Sort of. We have some of those same uh, kinds of uh, things that we need to address. Um, the bottom line is, is that, you know, our terms of use and our license agreement says every piece of data that you as a customer put into our database, you own. 
And you actually have the ability to prevent even us from seeing that data. Mm -hmm. So there's flags that you can set that keep it private um, and keep us from seeing it. It's rare that we have a customer do that because, you know, they like to be able to get support from us (laughs) for the things that they're dealing with there. And it makes it easier for for us to support them when we can see their surveys and we can understand what they're doing and, and, you know, help them through that process. But the data is owned by our customers, um, not by us, not by mm-hmm. any, not by any agency, not by any a, anybody else. Um, and and this is an interesting question because I actually did have somebody come to us after one of our uh, most recent lunch and learns. We had uh, a guest who used to be with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He was the chief regulator for the U.S. Army Corps. As we talked about WildNote and what it could do, and sort of you know the state of regulation. This person had gotten the impression that we were, in fact, that perhaps that we were selling the results of the wetland delineations that were performed, you know, on our platform, mm-hmm. which honestly would be a nice business model, <laughs> but it's uh, it, it's not something that we can do because again, that all that data is owned by the environmental consultant that uses our platform, and in most cases, it's probably even owned by the uh, permittee, the person that that environmental consulting person is working for. There's probably some agreement between them that says all this data that you collect is ours as part of our project and we own it and you can't do anything with it without our permission. Right, right. This is actually a minor point, but you mentioned uh, SQL databases. And uh, and again, as listeners know, I'm a big fan of, of querying SQL databases. Mm. <laughs> said no one uh, ever. <laughs> said, well, said me all the time. <laughs> I love them to pieces. Uh, I mean, to well-normalize, very carefully collected, rigorously protected As long as you understand the schema, you're good, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that's actually, again, back to my now former job, uh, that's something that drove me crazy. We had our data for a school information system was in SQL databases, but controlled by the company that runs our SIS, our school information system and our website. And we didn't have direct SQL access. So for a number of cases, what I had to do was write scripts that would use the access that was given to me to, to our own data to dump it into a local SQL database like Nightly, uh, you know, on our servers. So that way I could do some more sophisticated analyses. Do you give access, direct SQL access to your customers or is there some API for accessing it or, uh, or how is that managed? Yeah. So, so we don't, we don't give SQL access to the database, but you can export the uh, data, all the data that you've got and any of the surveys that you fill out. There's a, mm-hmm. uh, a basically a pivot table export format that will drop it out in, uh, I'm actually not sure if it drops it out in an, in an Excel format or a, C, a CSV file. It, that does let you get the data out and then you can import that data into kind of whatever you want to import it into, be it into a database or into a, a spreadsheet or into a database to do further work on it. Great. That's good to know. All right. Well, that sounds like a good chance to take a break, our final break, and we will come back and wrap up this discussion with WildNote and hopefully find out a little bit about the, the roadmap, where WildNote's going in the future. We'll do that on segment three. Back in a minute. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 
Okay, we are back with episode 158 of the Archaeotech podcast. And I wanted to follow up on something we were talking about earlier. I just couldn't find a point to jump in. Jeff, you were talking about the data security flag that users can put on their their account. I, I got to say, I'm pretty sure that was a result of me begging for that for archaeologists. <laughs> because archaeologists are always concerned with who can see their data, right? I know the, sure. the bios and the other people... It, Stuff is just culturally sensitive, especially when we have location detail. And I didn't want to gloss over that too much because that's an incredibly important thing to have because you might be working in Utah, for example, and technically the only people that are allowed to see that archaeological data are either the landowners or people who are permitted to see archaeological data in Utah. And people working in San Luis Obispo, California are not those people. So in order for us to maintain data security, we have that flag on your account that you can control, that you can say, hey, you know, you can pop in and do stuff to my account, but you can't see any any data because, you know, there's that. And in some cases, like depending on the projects I'm working on, if I've got an issue with a survey form or something like that, I will have to uncheck that flag, but I'm okay with it because I know the people at WildNote and I know what's going on and I and I and I trust that. So so Moving in a little different direction here, I want to talk about some of the other stuff WildNote does and some of the directions you're going here in the future. But let's talk about some of the, I guess, more nonprofit activities or philanthropic activities WildNote is participating in. One thing that comes to mind is the Clean Up the Lake project in Lake Tahoe. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. That is a really cool project. You know, there is boatloads of, no pun intended, uh, boatloads <laughs> of uh, trash that is sitting underneath the surface of probably most lakes, but in particular, you know, Lake Tahoe, which, you know, obviously our highest alpine lake, you know, largest alpine lake in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really, in my opinion, a natural wonder. I grew up going there all the time as a kid and have always loved it. But what a group is doing, a group called Clean Up the Lake. They essentially are going out, and I, and I believe, I want to say they're going something like 25 to 30 feet offshore. And I may be wrong on that a little bit, maybe a little bit uh, further offshore than that, where, which actually gets to a relatively deep point in the lake. I mean, you're down, you're, you're well, I say, you know, comparatively deep. I mean, you're still, you know, 50, you know, 60, 70 feet deep there, that sort of range out from the shore. Uh, but they're doing everything within that band all the way around the lake. They basically go out with a couple of boats, a team of divers, and somebody actually on a paddleboard who is above the divers. You know, the divers are down, then they actually have a little um, string that goes up to a buoy that they're pulling around with them. And when they find something on the ground, a, a tin can or a piece of trash or whatever it is they've got, they uh, go ahead and call out what it is through over the radio. And the person up on the paddleboard actually gets on top of where this buoy is sticking up, where they found this, and, and drops a pin in the Wild Note app and then types in and describes what it is that they found. So um, not only are they getting rid of stuff, that's, that's, you know, trash that's obviously on the bottom of the lake. Um, but they're also then from a, you know, kind of an archaeology perspective, anything that's over what I can't remember, it's 40 or 50 years old needs to be categorized. Mm -hmm. They're finding tons of tin cans. Obviously we know they're, you know, <laughs> everybody asks for the, your tin can inventory <laughs> and, you know, those sorts of things in this work. And, you know, anything that's older that, that needs to be handled from a cultural perspective, they go ahead and handle it that way. And it's really cool. Um, they were supposed to do this last year. 
started last year and then boom, pandemic happened. So it got postponed a year, but they did go and they actually did the same thing as a test pilot on Donner Lake, which is, you know, nearby mm-hmm. up on Donner Pass. And on Donner Lake, they, I think they pulled something like six tons of trash wow. out of that lake. And, you know, they're getting, you know, more than that, obviously out of Lake Tahoe, because it's a much larger, larger lake. So, I mean, I think it's a really cool project and really excited to be able to support it. Awesome. Yeah, that does sound like a really cool project. And it's interesting that you're doing something that I've, that's not something I would have necessarily have thought of in uh, environmental sciences, but it makes sense. Yeah. So are there new industries that WildNote is trying to target? Are there new directions that you're looking at over the next five or 10 years? Yeah. So I, I would say there's probably a couple of things that I think are interesting. Um, um, the first one is that, um, you know, by and large today, we are primarily used to support projects. So, you know, you've got, got a construction project and you need to go do the appropriate biomonitoring or cultural work or whatever it is you need to do to get your permits before the project starts. And we're primarily used by project teams and project managers. Our first sort of step and where we're evolving is that um, what we realize is that this makes projects much more efficient, but we're also gathering a whole lot of data and it's pretty easy for us to layer on top of that some more broader business functionality. So, you know, we want to move from a environmental consulting project platform or tool to more of an environmental consulting business platform or tool. So, you know, adding modules for things like scheduling so you can get the right people in the right place at the right time. This is really key on linear construction projects, you know, highways, pipelines, those sorts of things, because getting people lined up at the right time can sometimes be a challenge around some of that. So that's that's a direction uh, that we're going is to do, you know, kind of tackle more business-oriented types of problems. The other thing that we would uh, love to do is do more with the data that we've got, that, our, that our, our customers collect. And by that, I mean, they generally have to send that data off to a regulator somewhere. That typically happens by we create a report that gets spit out in the PDF. That PDF then gets mailed. Then that PDF gets read by a you know optical character recognition OCR type solution. And it gets dropped into a database at the regulator where they go and do whatever they have to do to issue the permits or, or make the approval. But gee, wouldn't it be a lot easier if we could just electronically send that data in sort of an electronic data Mm -hmm. interchange format? directly into the regulator itself, you then eliminate multiple steps, multiple handling of this thing all the way along the way. And it should ultimately make the process much more efficient. And then the third leg of that stool that we think about are the permittees. So we talk about the environmental compliance process being, you know, a permittee wants to run a project, he hires an environmental consultant who then creates the reports that go to the regulator, and the regulator sends the permits back to the to the permittee and then monitors what's going on with everything along the way. Well, you know, sort of that three-legged stool, a platform that that sort of facilitates the communication between those three entities and makes it a much smoother process is something we think is uh, a real opportunity uh, in this industry over the long term. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool because in archaeology in particular, When we have temporary sites out in the field, we give them temporary site numbers, and those are used as the location field within WildNote. And when we finish up a project, we basically have to take a spreadsheet of those site numbers only, not the whole sites, but just the numbers, and then the type of site, typically like prehistoric, historic, multi-component, that kind of thing, send it off to SHPO or Forest Service, wherever we're going to get our numbers from, and they basically send back a table that corresponds to the official state or agency site number 
that that's going to get. And then we have to go back in and add those all in. And if we could just hit a button that says export site numbers to Shippo, for example, and then have them just upload their table to that, that matches our site numbers and then ship it back and fill in those fields. Oh my God, that would be the glory days of, of archaeology right there. That would be, yeah, it would would make life much easier, (laughs) much easier for sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and so and so that that's that's our vision. You know, we 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 yeah. really want to be able to connect these uh, people. You use technology for what it's there for. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about the wetland delineation work and everything that goes on. Yeah, you know, the first step that happens when a delineation form gets submitted to the Army Corps is that ultimately somebody has to go through and make sure the data in that form makes sense. Well, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be a lot easier to have machines do that <laughs> instead? <laughs> And, you know, make sure those things are inbound and wouldn't that speed up the processing process? So th- those are the kind of things that we're, we're ultimately going to go try and tackle. Nice. You know, speaking of the future, and I don't know if you guys are even looking at this out that far uh, or not, and maybe this is just what your opinion, Jeff, of what you'd like to see. But what does the roadmap look like for the platform in general? I'm just wondering, not like features or anything like that, but, you know, right now, WildNote, it's a form building application with really advanced exports and does a lot of really cool things. But do you think that there's a different format that you could see out there? I'm trying to articulate this question in a good enough way, but do you think there's a different sort of, I don't know, platform or something that maybe you guys are thinking of high level here that WildNote could support. I don't even know what that looks like. Augmented reality glasses. I don't know. Some other different oh, way see. to enter data. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Something so, that's not form-based. So we are working with some people who have drone technology Yeah, that allows them to take, you know, very high res uh, photos of um, a wetland, a river, a stream, you know, whatever uh, the different, whatever it is that you're you're trying to measure and understand, then and take that and then actually use machines to, you know, evaluate what is in those photos and populate some of the um, Mm. forms or create Mm. the data that populates the forms. So nice. You know, you generally almost always have to do some level of ground truthing. Yep. But uh, if you could get 80 or 90% of your data collection done by a, a drone, um, number one, it'd be faster. Uh, number two, it'd be safer yeah. for the people who are involved because a lot of mm-hmm. times you got to go out into some pretty, you know, <laughs> you know, not necessarily safe locations. Um, and even more importantly, it'd be better for the environment because, mm-hmm. you know, one of the one of the paradoxes of environmental consulting is that in order to measure the environment to make sure you're not screwing it up, you got to go walk on it <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you could screw it up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, if you could do that via drone, uh, that would be, you know, really uh, useful. And, you know, I, I, I've even thought about this with respect to cultural things um, and, and for instance the use of you know like lidar on yep. a drone to look below levels of, of rate of uh, vegetation or you know could you in a cultural environment you know do the same thing but with a ground penetrating radar type mm-hmm. machine that you go out and walk the ground mm-hmm. with as opposed to digging holes those, those are the kind of things i think of from a data collection perspective that that uh, we could see coming in the future That'd be really cool having uh, machine learning and uh, and computer <laughs> imaging added onto it uh, as yeah. a, as a precursor to the uh, to the form filling. Yep, yep, 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think it's going to be, this kind of thing is going to be really critical because, you know, we are about to, as a, you know, as a nation, I mean, number one, just coming out of the pandemic as it is, there's a whole bunch of sort of pent up demand on construction projects, lots mm-hmm. of capital on the sidelines, ready to be deployed, you know, lots of, you know, permitting has already been done, they're ready to go. But then, you know, we are going to have some form of a pretty large infrastructure bill that's going to get passed, you know, whether it's one and a half trillion or two trillion, who knows what the number is going to be on it. But, you know, potentially an unprecedented building boom coming in the U.S. Well, what's going to be the bottleneck on all that? It's going to be getting the environmental work done (laughs) so you can get permits issued. And by the way, we're not minting, you know, new biologists and new archaeologists and, you know, all the things that we need to go do this fast enough in order to uh, keep up with all of that business. So the only answer is for the existing people to be able to deploy technology to do more with the people that they've got. And, you know, when you kind of get down to it, that's ultimately the problem that we're looking to solve. Well, that's all pretty exciting. And it's also really exciting that a guest mentioned drone before we did. Uh, There's somewhat of of an archaeotech drinking game where every time we mention drones, somebody's got to take a drink. We didn't make that Ah. up. We heard that from some fans. So we talk about drones a lot on the show. (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah, I like it. But I've definitely thought about exactly what you said. And we've talked about it extensively on the show with other guests and just with Paul and I about the dangers of field survey and having a drone with machine learning do a lot of that initial pre-survey for you. And then archaeologists do the ground truth thing. And the first thing I hear when I tell people that is, oh, well, you're going to take jobs away from archaeologists. I'm like, well, think about it this way. The drone can do a 100% survey. At best, we're doing a 5 to 10% survey when we do a 30 meter interval transect. And right. we know that. Like, we're comfortable with that because financially, that's all we can, that's all clients can really afford. The the project we're on right now is, I don't know, something like a $700,000 survey. It would be a $5 million survey if we were doing 100% data collection. I mean, that's just a fact. And, right. and, and I've worked in places that had, you know, deadly rattlesnakes and unexploded ordnance. Who wants to walk over that? Well, we did. No kidding. So, you know, in order to get all those things done in a, in a safer manner, we could do that. But with 100% data collection, you're also going to find a lot more stuff. And having archaeologists go out and ground truth that it's better for the resources, it's better for the environment, it's better for everything to just pinpoint and go right to those sources. And like I said, you're going to find more things and you're going to be doing more real archaeology. I mean, everybody likes hiking in the desert, but you're going to be doing more real archaeology and more consistently if we get to that point, which would be nice. Yep. So if you, if you could go directly to the places that you needed to be to find the things you yeah. needed to find instead of having to hunt for them, that would seem to, yep. me, a, uh, to me to be a good solution. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, Jeff, well, we're nearing the end of this podcast. Is there anything you wanted to mention about WildNote that we didn't cover today? We covered a lot. I, um, you know, (laughs) uh, if, if you are an environmental consultant or an archaeologist who needs uh, a solution like ours, give us a call. (laughs) www.wildnoteapp.com. I'll throw it in there. Another shameless plug. (laughs) It's in the uh, show notes already. (laughs) I'm sure that it is. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. And thanks for coming on and, and telling us what WildNote's doing and, and where it's going. And we'd love to have you on periodically throughout the future to give us a give us a WildNote update. I'd be happy to do it, Paul and Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash architect. 
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.